Welcome to the Board Game Workshop. I'm your host, Chris Anderson. In this contributor episode, Bez talks about how a game is exactly like a cake. Brendan talks about playtesting. I answer some questions with Bez, Joseph, and Tony. And finally, Tom has an interview with Jason Tagmeyer. But before all that, some contest info. Congratulations to Brian Compter, who won a copy of Roll for the Galaxy in our last contest. Our next contest will be for a copy of Battlestar Galactica. To enter, all you have to do is fill out a short survey about the show. Go to theboardgameworkshop.com, look for the show notes for this episode, episode 31, and click on the link to the survey. It's five questions about what you do and don't like about the show, and what you would like to hear in the future. Make sure you fill out your contact info to be entered. That's all I have about contests, so here's Bez. Hi, I'm Bez, and I'd like to talk about how a game is exactly like a cake. Or a cake is exactly like a game. Because I have I know someone called Alex and Alex made the only conceptual cake that I've ever eaten. Apparently this is something she does quite regularly. So for a first birthday party, which obviously is more for the parents than the child, there was a triple layered cake. Each extremity flavour that one parent liked but the other wasn't particularly keen on. One side coffee, one side white chocolate and ginger. And in the middle was dark chocolate and raspberry, which both the parents absolutely loved. And the whole thing was put into a triple tiered cake made to be eaten as a whole piece and then covered and shaped like rockets. I can't quite remember what the significance of the rockets was. But this was a beautiful concept about the two parents coming together and creating a child with love and compromising. But at the end of the day, it was a tasty cake. I'm not particularly fond of coffee. I didn't like that side. But the other two, I could appreciate. I could appreciate the coffee side. And that was good, I enjoyed it, but not as much as the other two. Anyway, the point is that whatever your theme is, whatever your your vision, whatever the high concept is, it's important to get the essentials correct. And you need to first look and say... Can this even work? Now, Etta is three years old, and for her third birthday, she asked for a carrot cake. And so a carrot cake was made. It's possible that she would have been even happier with something that gave her a bit of a surprise. For example, a chocolate cake that contained a carrot cake inside. Wouldn't that have been charming? Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. And sometimes a game is all about surprising the players and giving them something that they don't want or that they don't know they want, rather. It's about something that, when perceived, people will think, oh yes, of course I enjoy this, of course it brings me pleasure, of course I'm loving this, it's a great game, it's a great cake. And what a wonderful concept. But these need to be surprises. You can only get so far 
by doing exactly what the player explicitly asks for. When you're playtesting, sometimes it's not enough to just listen, of course, to what they ask for. You've got to listen to the emotions, the desires, the thoughts behind what their requests are. Is the game too difficult? Is there not enough complexity? Is there not enough to do with the economy? Is there not enough feeling of shortage? But of course, sometimes a perfectly serviceable cake shaped like a carrot and a lovely carrot cake is exactly what you want. And so for those times, maybe you want a lovely social deduction game that doesn't do anything particularly new but does everything very well. And there's great merit to that as well. And of course, again, to be able to make such a thing, you need to get the fundamentals right. You need to understand your medium innately. How long do things need to bake for? And it's all about that element of surprise and flamboyance and decoration, and lovely icing, and a lovely theme, a lovely concept on the top, but ultimately, a game, a good game, is something which has the fundamentals right, which the sheer fact of it should push itself towards an end. Something as simple as that, that not every game does. It's all about the fundamentals and even more, sometimes it's about the crafting. Can you pick up the pieces? But let's not get away from the point. It's about the fundamentals, just like a well-baked cake. Thank you for listening and I'll speak to you soon to talk to you about something which is not a cake, but it's exactly like a cake, because just like a cake and just like everything else, it is exactly like a game. Welcome to Including All Meeples. I'm Brendan Soltis. Hey y'all, welcome back. Thank you for tuning in again. During this segment, I want to talk about playtesting, but not from the dominant perspective that I've heard most of the time. I would have to assume that a person who is venturing into game design will know the basic understanding of playtesting. The goal is to collect feedback on the design from many different sources and groups and perspectives. And to do this, it is crucial to find playtesting groups that are outside of our comfort zone. What I mean by this is finding playtesters who are not your friends or family. Why is this crucial? For two reasons I can think of. First, we tend to surround ourselves with people who share common interests, which means in general, our friends will enjoy similar types of games that we enjoy or we might create. Second, in cases where we have relationships, it could create an implicit bias to give certain type of feedback like, 
I don't really want to give my friend bad feedback on this game, so I'll fudge it a little and say, yeah, it was pretty good. By reaching out, a designer can glean feedback from all different types of people and gamers and get the most comprehensive feedback. So let's dive in. How can we shift our perspective on playtesting? What is the new perspective I mentioned at the top of the segment? Well, similar to the general expand your playtesting groups beyond your friends and families, this one is about intentionally diversifying your playtesting groups. This requires an intentional look about who is playing my games and what type of feedback are they giving me. Now, when I talk about diversifying playtesting groups, I'm talking about looking at specific identities that the gamers hold. The identities that I'm talking about are race or ethnicity, socioeconomic status, ability, religion or spirituality, gender identity, nationality, and sexual orientation. We know that different identities carry unique lived experiences and these experiences will inform how a person approaches and reacts to a game. To me, a diverse group provides a couple of advantages. First, it will help create a rich data set of feedback to help improve a game in all aspects. There may be strategies, experiences, and understanding that varies with different groups. For example, when testing out a freeform negotiation game, it is important to look at playgroups with different makeup of gender identity. We know from research that negotiation and making deals changes when perceived gender identity of the participants also change. Feedback may give you insight into the unintentional power dynamics that were created by your game system and really allow you to address and design ways to combat that power dynamic. If you only had playtesters from one group, these dynamics may never come out before publishing. So how can you ensure a diverse playtesting group? One idea that comes to mind is collecting demographic data from participants. This may sound a little odd at first, but bear with me. This reminds me a lot of how research in academia is conducted. Part of interpreting the results is talking about the demographics and how they may impact the finding. And since playtesting is pretty much doing research on your design, I think this example applies. Having demographic data to look at will give you a sense of who is testing your game and what sort of feedback do you want to seek moving forward. If 90% of your participants are able-bodied, you may consider reaching out across the ability spectrum to gamers who are colorblind or may have mobility limitations. Further, the intention behind finding a diverse testing group actually helps bring people into the center of the hobby and give them a voice. So often, marginalized voices are ignored or not even included or considered, but playtesting is a great first way to plug folks in. The bottom line for me in playtesting is recognizing that systemic and cultural power dynamics makes its way into board gaming and board game design. Unless we have a diverse range of feedback, it will be much harder to make games that are inclusive and games that are tested thoroughly. Stay with me as we dive into the question, am I actually asking the right questions? 
The other part of this new perspective is about asking the right questions about accessibility and inclusion while playtesting. I recently completed a playtest for a larger company, and they were only interested in the statistics of the game. So things like who won, how did they win, by how much, and with a general box at the bottom that said any other feedback. So while this will help the company balance the game, uh, they were actually getting no feedback on accessibility of the game. So what questions should we be asking when designing the game? Beyond the actual balance in your mathematics and spreadsheets, designers should consider building in usability testing and sensitivity feedback. Usability testing will catch issues with gamer ability. Uh, this would include things like colorblindness accessibility, accessibility of symbols, ease of the rulebook, busyness of components and board that may trigger anxiety, and uh, issues with accessibility regarding mobility limitations. Sensitivity feedback, on the other hand, will help facilitate feedback about the inclusion of marginalized gamers. Some examples of this include getting feedback on story-driven pieces of your game, character sheets and bios, and of course, the overall theme. This idea has been thrown around by a couple of folks working towards inclusion in gaming, and I don't want to take the credit for bringing it up. Suzanne Sheldon from the Dice Tower has been vocal about this idea. It comes from the publishing world, where folks of different identities and backgrounds are hired to read an alpha or beta version of a book and give feedback on representation in the book. This allows for the author, editor, and publisher to make changes in order to represent people accurately and to avoid stereotyping or otherwise further marginalizing people of that particular identity. I agree that this could be a valuable piece in board game design when it comes to the story-driven pieces and theme. The feedback you would receive could be invaluable to making your game more inclusive for all gamers. So this may sound like a daunting task on top of the playtesting you need to do for the actual game and the actual design, but I think it's a valuable part of the design and development process. We are getting to the point where folks are really getting tired of games that misrepresent, stereotype, actively oppress, or use colonization as a theme. Thinking inclusive about game design starts with the people who you involve in the design process. Test early and test with intention. Thank you for listening to this segment of Including All Meeples. You can find me on my blog at gamingforjustice.com or on Twitter at gamingforjustice. That's underscore the symbol gaming, the number four, justice. Until next time on Including All Meeples, happy designing and happy gaming. We're here to answer some questions, and I have Bez, Tony, and Joseph with me. Our first question is from Chad Zog. Chad says, Dear people with more experience than me, what do you think about modular game design kits? For example, one, I buy a kit of blank game stuffs. Two, A, I design game with said bits in mind and post PNP online. Two, B, I find a PNP for said kit and play it. 
3. Inexpensive fun to be had by millions of game design nerds everywhere. Maybe eventually A, B, and C additionally kits. A, bad idea. B, silly idea. C, Chad, why haven't you kickstarted this already? So, who knows the green box of games? I have not heard of that. Okay, so um, it was kickstarted a bit of time ago, and um, yeah, sounds quite similar to what Chad is proposing. Basically, a bunch of generic bits with which people make, you know, different games, and. I think like the designer did some really nice things in encouraging um, designers to put more games in. Like on the Kickstarter, there was a pledge level where I think for about five pounds more, you could get a um, deck of cards to um, sort of help you kind of randomly invent mechanisms to be mushed together but also you could get a second copy of the game to give away to someone and you had to design a game by I think yeah a certain deadline and so if you did that you basically got an amazing deal on your second copy and um, it was a smart thing but there's also the peace pack um, which I think Eric Martin might have helped with I think when it was redone as the infinite game system by Osborne, but yeah, it seems like what he, Chad is talking about might already exist. Yeah, I was gonna mention the piece back, which um, I mean, I think this the same thing has come up a couple of times. People have designed a thing, but I think what's as far as I know, I mean, maybe I'm just not aware of it. But I think the thing that you really need for something like that to work is a really strong community behind it. If just a couple of people buy packs and it's a good deal on prototype parts or something, that's all well and good. But to actually have people trading like rule sets and stuff to get it going, you really need some sort of cohesive community where people are talking about it and working off of each other and sharing. That's why, um, yeah, I think that the idea of... Oh, I really should look it up, but the designer of Green Box of Games, just the way that they encourage the community and the way that for the first Kickstarter box, they not only had the original 16 game list, but then they also had 16 of the games that were submitted by designers for you know, that deadline. And his whole notion is that every year he's going to go for another 16 games in a rule book, which is a pretty amazing idea if he's able to pull it off. Yeah, I mean, it's not that different than like Google Plus Plus, you know, it's a game system, but I guess the idea is that there are also bits and pieces and tiles that you can play with more than just cards. So I don't see why the idea wouldn't be able to translate. I think that maybe it would be a little more difficult to build a community around something where the the kit is a little more expensive. Um, and, you know, a lot of games also are, their selling point is the theme and art, whereas one with, with just a game system may be a little bit tougher to sell, I think. But I think as long as you have a few fun games and build a community around it, it seems like something that would be doable. There actually was a um, Kickstarter last year called The White Box, a uh, game design workshop in a box. Um, 
they uh, kickstarted it. It's basically a bunch of components. Like it's it's a white box with meeples, um, cubes, discs, dice, and stuff in a whole bunch of different colors, specifically geared towards game designers. Um, so you know, big box of prototypes. Uh, pieces that you can go out and buy. They don't have as much of a community like designing games with those pieces as much as, hey, let's design a product for game designers because buying bits individually is really expensive. Um, but there are a few stores uh, that actually carry them. I know Rainy Day Games here in Portland and uh, Mox Boarding House up in Seattle had a copy sitting on shelves. Um, but uh, And they're available now through the uh, person who kicks started it but it's not really a game system as much as it is a box of bits for you to design your own games i mean the whole question of game system is and what is a game system is an interesting one and i saw and a discussion on bgg about whether 504 was a game system with the someone saying well if it had been designed with only let's say three modules rather than nine then people would be more inclined to design extra modules and then it probably would be a game system. But I think the other thing is that with Wibble++, now you mention it, the thing about those cards is that it is quite tight, it's just one deck, and it's almost on purpose, it's a bit restrictive on what you can do, because I find it interesting that someone else mentioned the whole fact that when you've got a storytelling game or a grabbing game, uh, they might not be perfect. They might only be 95% of what they should be by virtue of the fact that the components aren't specifically optimized for that um, one game. So by virtue of that, you always almost have to make... Um, concessions in your designs and I'm not sure whether when you're making a game system it seems really nice either to have something which is completely out there like a pyramid or something which is portable and like I mean a deck of cards has taken off quite well and I don't know it's quite interesting to see other game systems and wonder why hasn't the piece pack taken off? And is that purely because of, you know, the sh the shortcomings that are, you know, just integral to any game system that is going to make concessions and compromises? One of my favorite threads on Board Game Geek, uh, which is still out there, um, is actually it's actually a geek list. It's um, checkers as a game system, and all of the different games that you can play using a checkers set. Um, which is really clever. Um, they've gone through and looked th for various games that exist. Um, th there's one called Amazons, which is actually really, really fun. Um, but uh, it's a really interesting uh, exercise in looking at something that already exists and seeing what game can I make with this or what games exist for this. Uh, C.M. Perry, the Bright Hope Futurist, at BH Futurist on Twitter, he asks, what does it mean to incentivize the players, and how do we do that in board games? Uh, player incentives, especially with my, um, my design plutocracy, has been 
the biggest problem I've run into, I've written about it at least once, but um, getting your players to do what you want them to do, it's really hard. They never want to listen. They want to go off and do their own thing and break your game all the time. So any any tips on incentivizing players and guiding them down the path of most fun in your game? I think sometimes uh, you have to... First thing is identify what's fun about your game, right? And ideally you incentivize people to do that. But there's this kind of concept called, um, I think, desire paths. Sometimes you'll see players wanting to do a particular thing, and you have to pause and wonder, why don't I want them to do that? Maybe that's what players want to do. If you see a lot of players kind of heading towards that direction, maybe that's what people find is fun. But uh, basically, you want to encourage people to do things that you believe will be fun and uh, discourage people from obviously doing things that will ruin the fun for other people. And I think that all comes down to setting up the win condition and your goals correctly. Because uh, when you enter a game, you you basically, everyone who agrees to play the game has to play by this set of rules and aim for this one particular goal. And you want to make sure everything that you have surrounding your game uh, incentivizes people to, or rather all the actions that you want people to be taking should head towards that one goal. So once you have people buying in, then you can get people to do those things you want in order to maximize the amount of fun. And if people are doing things that are creating unfun situations for others, uh, but still advancing themselves towards a goal, then that might be something you need to take out. So it's all about, I think, finding what the fun is and making sure getting to the goal allows people to do those fun things. So one of the most brilliant designers that I interact with on a regular basis is uh, Chris Rollins. He goes by NPC Chris on Twitter. And he recently posted about how he thinks one of the biggest skills that you can develop as a game designer that isn't talked about a lot is empathy. And I think it goes directly into player incentives. Um, You have to be able to kind of put yourself in the shoes of the people playing your game to figure out inside of this system, what would I want to do? Um, What what do uh what what's fun inside this system and part of that will just be play testing with people and getting them to tell you what's fun observing people and seeing what's fun um at that point it's really just uh tweaking the mechanisms of the game so that what you want people to do is rewarded and what you don't want people to do isn't rewarded um people usually will not try to pursue a path that isn't rewarding Um, especially if they can tell so in advance that it wouldn't be rewarding. Um, But you do occasionally run into the opposite problem where you have um, traps that are built into your game, things that look like they should work or things that people want to do but aren't incentivized. Um, And either that's a good location where you can look for some streamlining in your game like if you aren't intending for that to be there but people want to do it maybe you take it out to remove that desire or maybe it's something that needs to be further emphasized it's a piece of the fun that people want to engage with that uh, they aren't but the only way to really determine that is is both testing it really hard and at the same time trying to put yourself in their shoes 
as they're playing the game, what is it that lo- that pointed them at this path or drew them towards it? Yeah, to that point, um, I know a lot of people say you shouldn't play in your own playtests, which I think is important. You should definitely observe and not interact and get good feedback. But I think it's also important to every once in a while sit down and play your game and be a player and experience through a player's eyes. And is there something you want to do as a player? Maybe that's something that should be in the game. Or if there's something that you didn't have fun doing, that's like it's a really good perspective to actually get inside your game as a player sometimes. I think that especially Joseph, you know, covered it so well. It's basically all about first identifying what the fun thing is and then secondly, you know, incentivizing it and back to the original question of how you incentivize that well it's simple by you know tweaking numbers and rewarding people with points ultimately and um, I think it's good to note that if people are doing things that aren't going to win them the game then that almost always means that that is a fun thing I mean like with Magic the Gathering um, tribal, the whole concept of having loads of creatures of one type and then beefing all your goblins up with a goblin king, for example, wasn't a particularly strong strategy, but people were enjoying it, and so people were doing it, and so Mark Rosewater said, hey, we should do more of this, because even when it's weak, people are still doing it. And I feel like um, winning the game should not only allow people to do the fun things, but even force them to some degree to do some of the fun things. Brian Compter, who is Scrapyard Armory on Twitter, asks, There's been a lot of talk recently about the glut of new games that come out every year. How do you set yourself apart in the tidal wave of games releasing every year? I think last I saw is something like 3,000 new games coming out every year. Like, that's an amazing amount of games to try to rise above. But I think to a degree... You don't have to. You don't have to be the best of those 3,000 games. Um, You just have to find your niche and work towards that. Like if you have a small game that 100 people like, just make it the best small game for those 100 people and work with that. You don't have to be the next Terraforming Mars or Scythe, which, I mean, obviously it's great for financial reasons and popularity reasons, but there's different ways to measure success. So I don't think you necessarily have to rise to the top of that huge pile. You just have to find the place you want to be in that huge pile. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one way to go about it. I've heard that people say, if you want to stand out, you either need to be the best at doing that one thing, or you need to do something completely different. And those are kind of the two ways. And if you can do both, that would be obviously amazing. Um, And I think those are kind of two ways. And being the best at one thing is uh, really, really hard. So a lot of times you just kind of find something else, maybe a theme that stands out that's unusual or a new mechanic that, or a combination of mechanics that people haven't seen, although it's rare to find truly unique mechanics. A lot of people will just find, a lot of times people will design games that they enjoy because they can't find a game that fits their needs. So a lot of times people do that. And I think there's a space for that game uh, among all the thousands. And even though there's so many, there's, I think the growing crowd and the number of people in the hobby continues to grow. And hopefully 
uh, that crowd will keep up with the number of games as well. I think part of it has to do with exactly what your aims are. Um, if your aims are just to get your games out there and in front of as many people as possible, then um, you don't necessarily have to be novel or different as much as you have to be loud. <laughs> um, you know, awareness is the real um, thing that you're trying to compete for in the industry. And innovation is one way to do it, um, whether it's a unique theme or unique mechanisms. Um, another is just marketing, um, finding your niche. Um, one of the designers uh, who I greatly respect, uh, Grant Rodiak, has we recently switched over his whole way of doing business to more of a designer game type studio where he designs the games that he wants to make and rather than running around pitching them to publishers or uh, trying to find some large success in the board game industry, he makes a small batch on Kickstarter and that's all it is. And then he moves on to the next thing. For him, you know, he's got a full-time job. He's got lots of other things that he's doing. And uh, game design is really a passion. It's something he has to do uh, creatively to fulfill himself. And so just knowing that his game is in people's hands and that they're playing his game is really his end goal. Um, so it really has to do with what you define as success in the industry. What do you need to get out of the industry? Is it a paycheck? Is it a career? Is it a creative outlet? What are you looking for? And, um, then figure out what you need to do to stand out in that space. Um, you know, some games are going to be missed, some games are not, but if you can find your audience or your, you know, 100,000 true fans, you don't need everybody in the world, just enough. I think that, sadly, Tony's absolutely right when he says that marketing is, to some degree, more important than the design. But I would kind of say that maybe a good, a well-designed game will continue to sell well and as Tim Fowers has said games are by their very nature viral I mean you play them with other people except for solo games of course but if you're playing them with more and more people then more and more people are hear about it and if the game's good enough then they'll want to buy their own copy to play with more people and so it will spread and of course that's down to the design and but then you've got to keep it in print and keep it available. And that's its own challenge as well, of course. And there are so many people that they go onto Amazon, they type in the name, and then if they can't find it there, that's where they stop. And a good marketing basis, I mean, for example, I don't think that Yogi is massively better than In a Bind, which was my version. I think that it's better because it's got plastic cards and so the cards are wiped clean and that. And, you know, the card trays are kind of nice and, yeah, it's a tin box, but really most of it's down to the distribution network and the budget that Jigamic had. And when I spoke to them in October, they'd already sold about 10 times as many as I had in a couple of years they'd sold that in yeah a couple of months because you know they've got that marketing budget and that's why I sold it to them because they're a big company and they are able to do that and sadly if you are a designer 
self-publishing your game, there you're not going to be able to do that unless, yeah, it's just very unlikely that you'll be able to get to that level. I mean, Kickstarter does allow, you know, Isaac Childress to come up with, damn, I forgot the name of his first game. But, so like, my point was that Isaac Childress didn't come out of nowhere. Like, even though Gloomhaven is how a lot of people know him, he had the design experience, awareness of how to get to distributors, and he had the experience as a self-publisher of doing something before that. But, you know, he worked hard, and so it's... But ultimately, one point I wanted to make... Sorry, I'm really rambling, but do what you want and then push it as far as you can and push it further and push it further and then hopefully it will be unique and it will be something that no one else can do and once you've like pushed it as far as you want like maybe you want to do something simple like simplify it further and simplify it further or if you want to do something crazy like Gloomhaven you know complexify it further and as far as you want or if you want to focus on like a game with a long title like I've done like you know do something with a 2000 word title and you know a ridiculous premise like that and do something that's uniquely you and then hopefully it will be something that other people can't help but talk about well thank you all for staying around to answer these questions i know it's getting late for some of us yeah you just want to go through and give your contact info again so on twitter i'm stuffed by bears on instagram i'm stuffed by bears my website is stuffbybears.com and um, my email is stuffbybears at gmail.com and on Facebook, my page is facebook.com slash thingsbybears because Facebook doesn't allow you to have FB next to each other, so I'm thingsbybears on Facebook. Best way to reach me is at BeardedRogue on Twitter. You can also find me as one-third of the Breaking Into Board Games podcast uh, with Gil Hova and Ian Zhang. You can find me on Twitter at FanFactories, and then on Facebook and Instagram, you can find me as Fantastic Factories. And thank you again for joining me. Go Forth and Game is on the air. This is Tom Kurganis offering another broadcast. So, welcome back to Go Forth in Game. Uh, it's the podcast where the people who play the games talk to the people who make and design the games. Tonight, I'm talking with Jason Tagmeyer of Button Shy Games. Uh, say hey, Jason. Hey, Jason. Haha. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's great. <laughs> it's, thanks for being my guest. I'm um, glad we have got to talk. Um, I've been meaning to get you on the podcast for quite a long time now, but just hadn't got around to it. I had those technical difficulties for about six months. But here we are, and we're going to have a good conversation. Um, just in case somebody doesn't happen to know who Button Shy is and who you are, why don't you give us a quick rundown on that? So Button Shy is my little, and I mean little, game company, literally, because we just make these tiny little wallet games. It's essentially 18 cards and a little folding wallet. And every, almost every game that I make or that I publish fits into that mold somehow. Sometimes they're even smaller than that. But often it's the, our main feature is kind of that wallet line. 
design. So we essentially make a game every month, usually released via some method of Patreon, Kickstarter, or a combination of the both. Uh, and basically we sell everything direct to consumer with a, a few stores whole, uh, stocking our games. But the majority of what Button Shack does is makes tiny games and sells them directly to uh, our own fans and players. And we've got our own little crew going. Sweet. Yeah, I know you, I saw on the website that you're – you you tout yourself as having the tiniest office of any game company in the, uh, was it in the back of a uh, game store in your area yeah we actually right? I, i'm not even there anymore because oh, wow. i was I, I i was but we were so busy that the the commute to there and back was it wasn't even worth it i just now i'm just everything's out of home okay so everything's in my house you can probably see all the stacks <laughs> of things behind me <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If yeah, I should show you what my house looks like right now. I've got twenty-four-year-old <laughs> suitcases and and Sterilite containers and furniture all over the place right now. So, yeah, you've done a really good job carving out a niche in the the micro game, small games area. I mean, I would say you're probably the premier maker publisher of that particular type of game right now uh, so congratulations for that yeah thank you that's that's an honor to hear that and you, you mentioned um that your direct sales to the gamer which is really really cool and that there are some game stores out there i just want to let you know atomic empire here in durham yeah has your games on the shelf that's great i think we just sent them some more too yeah that's great um they're we've asked them if they would be willing to set up a local designers area for their games and they're working on that and it's like right when you walk in the door on when on your right when you see it and i know uh daniel solace has got his um game that he did for you guys hanging right there and that's great gosh i want i don't think anybody oh uh, josh of course the josh did the did um we did a a little yeah. yeah we did a little postcard game with josh yeah, but that's not there, but, you know, he, his, the rest of his stuff's there, too. You know, we've got five or eight actual board game design, published board game designers in the area, and then a couple of RPG guys. Um, that's great. Which is really cool. Yeah, Jason Morningstar's local, Yeah, and he's a friend of mine, and I actually got to play test early versions of Fiasco. It oh, was amazing. fantastic. My, although my old RPG group hated it, it, it was so, <laughs> so it was so different from what we you know we ran. Uh, we used to do Rollmaster with Middle Earth, and then we did some D and D and a little bit of Savage Worlds. And you know, you throw this one in there, it's so different. It's yeah. so freeform that they just. I mean, it was fun, but they're like, eh. So if you look in the if you look in the fiasco book for the list of playtesting people, it's the. Uh, the he's yeah. got the listing of the groups and the different names, and ours was like the those who don't want to be known or something like that. But yeah, anyways, that's neither here nor there. Uh, let's get back to button shy a little bit because I'll go on about all kinds of other stuff forever and ever. Um, that's a pretty unique name, button shy. Where did that come from? 
So button shy, uh, it was. Uh, I used to make um, little pin back buttons for bands that you would you you know would wear on your jacket or your bag or whatever. And I made them for years under the name Button Shy. Uh, and the whole thing there was you know it was a button business, and I was very shy. I was voted shyest kid in my sixth grade class. So, um, together, the it, we really were looking for words that flowed together well. And uh, mm-hmm. button shy, it just it was one of those things that just popped out and, and like I loved it. So we went with that name for the company and I did buttons for like five years. I did that for my full-time job selling directly to bands and things like that and stores and, and elections and all kinds of things. Uh, and eventually we stopped doing it. I sold off the equipment, got a real job, health insurance. We had kids and things like that. It came time to, to name this whole game business that I was working on. And I still had the website for button shy and I was still using it for hosting all my images for Every other name I came up with for, for a board game company, it was always buttonshy.com slash something. So eventually I was just like, let's just name it Buttonshy. It's got a cool, I paid $45 for this cool logo. It's Nobody's using it. So uh, I switched yeah. it over and it worked well enough to where Buttonshy was just, it was an extension of myself. It was it was just a, a cool name that, that, that it kind of means what you want it to mean. So. Yeah, that's yeah. It's neat, and it's like you said, it's it's unique and it's recognizable. Yeah, exactly. And it does flow. So yeah, that's and those are important things with uh, <laughs> you know when you have a game coming. That's really cool. I didn't know that about you. Well, I, I think I remember previously finding out that you were uh, you did buttons, but I didn't know it was that extensive. Oh, it was yeah. I did that. Basically, I played in a band, and we we needed to make buttons for our band, so we just bought the equipment, made it for all of our friends' bands. Right. And then I eventually just started making them for stores, and it it, it got pretty deep. I was making. I had one store that was ordering. I mean, he was ordering like twelve hundred buttons a week. Wow. So yeah, I was doing it. I was doing it full time and all by hand too. So man, it was <laughs> it was neat. All right. So more about button shy. Um, you guys, as I said, you're known for doing the small, really small micro games. I guess is the best way to say that. Uh, you said you know eighteen cards is pretty average for y'all, but you've made some that are less. I mean, Wildcats is what three cards. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. Um, so it, that whole range right there. You've you've done a lot of games. I I thought I knew when I you know started looking up more to to invite you as a guest. I had a good handle on your games, but I got looking. Man, you've made a you published a ton of games. <laughs> um, yeah, there's 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 a ton of them. So, well, off the top of your head, how many do you, have you run in? Have you published so far? So, we have a couple different, and I, some of it doesn't even count. But yeah. for the wallet game line, right? That's Let's our main that. our main line. Then we have this like board game a month thing where we release these little tiny games: two, three, four, six, nine cards, something like that. So there's one of them every month, and sometimes two. But as far as the wallet line goes. I think we're up to almost like 35. Good grief. So, I know I have at least 30 here. There's three new ones that are on there. No, there's five new ones that are on their way here. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's just there's 
because we're doing it this like this monthly thing, they're yeah. constantly overlapping. Um, I just got samples of, of new ones yesterday. I just got wallets for other ones a couple of days ago. And, and yeah, so we're up to close to 35. Yeah. And you're doing this pretty much all yourself. Like you, uh, yeah, you, my wife, me and my wife. Right. So you, you're, <laughs> you're getting the game. You're, you're discovering the game, developing the game, putting the artist and the uh, designer together, doing all the publishing end of it, and then putting actually putting <laughs> the games in the wallets and, and then the doing games, the fulfillment yeah. yourself too. You, yeah. you are incredible, and <laughs> some people would say crazy. But it's working know, really. Very accurate. It's working really well for you. So I'd it, say, yeah. Over the my wife took on a, a huge role in the assembly of the games. She right. almost assembles every single game at this point. Uh, when I was doing that as well, I was starting to lose my mind. Yeah. So now I've 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 stepped away from assembling the games, and she's actually doing some of the mail now too. So I'm stepping away from that and just doing the the signing, the development, the graphic design. I do a lot of the graphic design, right. the Kickstarter setup, and all that. And we've got a couple guys that help out with some playtesting and some development, um, you know, and, and things like that. But the bulk of it is right here. Yeah, well, tell, tell her thank you. <laughs> Uh, we we appreciate it. It it really makes a, a a cool and fun thing that that you're so unique like that. I mean that's how things way, way back air quotes <laughs> when Kickstarter started. Um, you know it was people like you who got it rolling. You know doing everything yeah in your house and not you know I just. Go ahead. My whole my whole approach to it was basically that if we do it the same as everybody else, then we're just fighting fighting for the small crowd. I mean, it's a small crowd as it is, and then you've got you know twenty five different small publishers that are making you know similar sized games at a similar price point, and they're all kind of fighting over the same audience. So I said if we do something different, then we can develop our own audience and and fight alongside of that other twenty that group of 20 publishers right so that was the whole approach was to not not fall in the crowd because you're going to wind up you know fighting each other right yeah and and congratulations kudos for you for doing that that was a really good business strategy um thanks it it's working really well for you because you know you a lot of times when people think oh it's an 18 card game it's you know they're going to think who aren't familiar with you're going to think oh it's it's not very good but that's totally wrong for your game your (laughs) games are are gamers games in a lot of cases and a lot of them are really accessible too i mean you could teach circle the wagons to anybody in just a few minutes but it's a deep game it is that's that game is is what i would consider our wallet game perfection it's going to be hard to to ever top that and it's a challenge i'm putting out there but it's it's definitely that game hits all the right marks it's fast it's easy to teach it's super replayable replayable with all the different variations it has great art um it's 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 just it all fell together really well for that game yeah it really did so is that um is that your best seller so far it's definitely like our top five are circle the wagons avignon Mm -hmm. 
Ahead in the Clouds, Pentaquark, right. and then for the fifth one might be something like Twin Stars or uh, even Cutting Falk might be up there. Okay. Um, but that's those are like our top sellers, and it's interesting because a lot of people ask us like what sells really well, like player count. You know, do two to four player games sell? And it's really weird because ours are. Our two of our top or three of our top five are, are two player only and two of them are one player only yeah so player count it does seem like a smaller player count works really well for us because you're carrying these around but also a smaller player count works well because there's only so many cards if every player needs to hold two or three cards then you're going to run out pretty quickly yeah so so we've done really well with low player counts um but everything else is just kind of it's kind of across the board it's it seems like there's uh people want games that are memorable and you know that that you can kind of get into emotionally there's just they like a little bit of meat on it and we get a lot of pitches of games that you know here's a game that you could play while standing in line and i said well i want a game i want to publish a game that you could play anytime you know right. if you can only play it standing in line then we start to run into some trouble and you know we just want something that's that's people are going to think about it after they're done playing and and mm-hmm. the one little the one little line that i had was that we don't believe in filler oh. um you know not even just like the terminology but the whole idea of just a game being forgettable right. you know the whole point of this is is great table presence in 18 cards a great game in 18 cards and just trying to get the most out of it that's a really really nice philosophy it's neat that you're you're focusing on the smaller well, not necessarily focusing, but um, that you service the two-player and the solo games also, because that it, it seems like solo's starting to get a lot more important yeah. than it used to be when I got in, you know, 10, 12, 13 years ago. You know, solo variants are almost necessary now for any game, um, and then yeah. a lot of the the recent Roll and Write um, wave, a lot of those were solo games, so. Um, yeah, it's nice that you're you're not just making solo variants, but you're willing to publish a game that's solo. That's it. It just plays solo. Yeah, um, I was nervous the first time we did it. It was Pentaquark was our first one, right? And it it went nuts. Like I was I was shocked that solo only and an extremely you know unique theme like you know uh, just Pentaquarks and the whole. Uh, that whole angle on it, it, right. it just I, I really didn't expect it to take off as well as it did and that kicked it off for me to where I said I'll take those chances on solo only because I feel like it can really get into it as a solo game like we've had some solo variants where it's just a you know real simple die roll AI you know AI player that you're playing against mm-hmm. but I feel like when you dive really deep into the whole solo thing then you can really make a good game out of it so I've been looking at that as, as solo only uh, just for a couple games. I think it's good. Yeah, it is good. Um, I want to um, ask you about the, the wallets themselves. Um, how did you – I can remember when you were going through figuring out the wallets and everything. What, re, yeah. Recount how you came up with that design and that format. <laughs> Basically, I – was looking at games like Love Letter and just all the micro games of, of the time 
which there weren't that many, um, but just how to package a small game. And there there weren't too many options with it. Like you could do a tiny tuck box, but it seems like nobody likes tuck boxes. <laughs> That's one of those things that right. just put a game in a tuck box and it's like doomed. Um, you could put it in a pouch. But the problem with the pouch is you don't really get that full artwork. And, you know, sometimes you can't even print on it. We put the name on it or anything. And then this pouch still has to go into something else, you know, right. for a store or whatever. Look at, like, like custom Ziplocs where you can actually, like, print on them. Uh, they're just – they're very expensive. But you can print, like, full color on the front of them. You could do where they had the Ziploc with the, uh, like, the header on top where they would fold a card over and it would have right. all the names on there. But nothing, nothing really felt like the right product until I found these wallets. And the wallets just, uh, they're, they come in a whole ton of colors and you can put the name on it in a variety of colors. And it just worked for, for setting a, a product mold and, and branding themselves individually. Yeah, it branding that's that's a good a good way to put it because you know you see one now and you know it's one of your games. Um, yeah, it's it's funny and I get questioned almost daily. Someone will ask me where I get the wallets from and who's your source. Yeah, and I just have to keep saying I'm not telling you because it's all I have. Like, yeah, that's the one thing that I've got going. Well, it's that's your brand. I mean, you know. Yeah. You, you don't want somebody stealing that. I mean, I know you 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 mentioned last year, or, or we're looking at the um, shoot. What's the the there? Have, there's a contest on Game Crafter right now for them. Oh, the 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 hook boxes. Hook boxes, yeah. Uh, which is a neat idea, and, and if you move to that, then fantastic. But um, the the wallets are are the wallets say button shy. Yeah, no, the hook boxes, the whole thing with that was I was going to offer the games there as well. Oh, and some gotcha. of the things that we have that we've sold out of yeah. where it would be too much to print a whole next another run, we mm-hmm. could throw on there just so people can get them if they missed out. Oh, okay. Um okay. and then even maybe some games that we don't know if they'd sell as well, we could test it there. Yeah. Um but yeah, the the wallet line is the main is the main feature. Right, right. The the other um line, I guess if you could call it that, is the um game of the month line that you do with your patreon yeah um, i haven't seen a lot of those because i can't do patreon right now for anybody sorry um <laughs> it's okay <laughs> but um i know we talked briefly josh mills had one of his games published I yeah a couple other people maybe around here actually did too i don't remember oh oh i know it was Mark McGee and Daniel. They had, they've got one of you. We, we did a wallet game with them. Yeah, yeah, you did a wallet game with them. That's what I was remembering. Um, yeah, and that was recent. Yeah, it's just that's the one I got in the mail yesterday. Okay, cool. <laughs> so it, it just came in. Yeah, I remember seeing them um, working on that in the design meetings. Um, so that, yeah, that turned out nice. Uh, so oh, cool. so what else? What else, What have you got? You said you mentioned you had five on the way. What's on the way? Um, so the last Kickstarter were th- was three games. It right. was uh, Hero Tech. Yep. Uh, Kintsugi, which is Mark and Daniel's game. Right. Uh, and Invino Morte. So it was the three of them. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and yesterday I got in copies just to review, and as soon as I gave the okay, they start the printing on them. And then I have the two new, what we call our select games. And select ah. games are basically just, it's a, it's uh, it's 250 copies of a game uh, sold directly through Patreon, and then anything that's left over is sold on the website. Right. Um, so the last, the next two of those, um, it's Feet on the Ground, yep. which is... Daniel uh, Daniel Newman's kind of sequel to Ahead in the Clouds, and uh, Jewelers Row, right. which is like a, a very you know app style uh, style play uh, uh, game. So the two of those are are here. I'm just waiting on the rules. Everything just comes at a different time. It's, right. it's crazy. Yeah. So those five are are going to be in and in and going out within the next couple of weeks. Okay, cool. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you mentioned the select games. Uh, I wanted I didn't write that down, but I wanted to touch base about that. Um, that's a cool. Yeah, they're idea basically too. just it's just a way for us to to release a game that is maybe has some sort of something about it that makes it hard for Kickstarter or or any other avenue. You know, a full full release of a thousand or two thousand right. games. You know, well, the first one we did was a game called You Full, and it was a four player only game. Yeah. So that's a that's a hard sell on Kickstarter, but we wanted to release it anyway. Right. So we we take this different. We just directly print it and sell it to to our people, and then whatever's left will sell out sell through through the website and all. Cool. Cool. That's a neat idea too. Yeah. You have some really good business practices. <laughs> it's it's like throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's it's, it's hard. It's you know. Yeah, and, and we're not seeing the stuff that doesn't stick, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, a lot of that doesn't make it to yeah. this point. Or or we we test it and then see and then quietly you know step away from it. Right. Right. Uh, the next question I got is. Um, you get a lot of your games through your contests. Um, yeah. What gave you that idea, and uh, can we see some more contests this year? So the contests have been mostly run by Ben Beagle, who, okay. who kind of does – he wanted to do the contests. He's you know a key developer, playtester you know, for me, and the sounding board and everything else. So at one point he wanted to do these contests. So, and I think we saw a couple others. Maybe the Cardboard Edison was going at the time a lot of the game crafter contests so we saw you know the and even the ones on bgg so we saw the potential of of having a successful contest and ben even put up all the cash for it for cash prizes and really just wanted to be involved and 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 do this so we our first contest we just asked for an 18 card game and we got I think we got like 72 submissions and that's right. the one that's circle the wagons one. Yeah. And, and the win, the prize wasn't even publication. It was just the cash. And I kind of sat there and cherry picked out of there. The ones that I wanted to publish and reach out to people mm-hmm. sort of as a side thing to the first contest. And we've had, I think we've published like five or six games out of that first lot already. Right. So the, uh, next year we did another contest. We just added some extra options. Like you could use some coins and things yep. like that. It wasn't required to just the 18 cards. Uh, and a lot of those games are going to be our 2018 games. Okay. So in, in 2018, we're doing a new contest, and this is really just the early phases of it. But I want the contest to be all on video. I want it to almost be like a video series where we get the submissions in, and then on camera, we're going to evaluate them and discuss them, and then we're going to 
pair some of them up and make individual uh, videos of comparing the two against each other and, and seeing which ones make it through almost like a bracket. Uh, yeah. A uh, beat down. <laughs> yeah. And I'm hoping it's not too much of a beat down and more of a uplifting, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, I, I don't want anybody crying about the critique of their design, but I think the whole, there's a, we have a really good approach to it where comparing the two uh, in certain categories and we're going to see which ones do really well. And by the, by omission, you'll be able to see what didn't go so well for the right, other ones. Right. Just trying to keep it real positive. Well, that's a that's uh, a neat idea. The bracketing ideas that's that is actually pretty cool. I like yeah, I like we, that a whole lot. Our whole model is at the end we can have the next one ready for pub the the winner ready for publishing immediately. Right. Because uh, we we turn around games in almost like forty five days here. So yeah, I'm trying to trying to make that all work, and it's a lot. It is a lot of work. Any kind of you know any kind of media project is is a, a huge undertaking in its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so trying it though, I think that'll be a great next evolution for our contest. Cool. Cool. I'll, I'll try to get something ready for, I almost had something ready for the last one. <laughs> I may continue work. And actually my son's got one oh, nice. that I could probably, yeah, he's got a, uh, that would be a, a dexterity game. How old is your son? He, <laughs> He designed this when he was 12, so he's 15 now. Um, <laughs> because today today was the first time we had to sign a contract with a parent oh, for wow. somebody under the age of 18 that designed the game. That's cool, though. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. It's a little nine-card thing for our board game of the month, but Neat. it's cool. Yeah. Good. Well, whoever that is, congratulations. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Which of your which of your wallet children is your favorite? So which which of your wallet games is your personal favorite? I think I might already know that, but or, or do you want to um, do you want to go down that a, route? No, I don't mind. It's okay. one of those things where like I have to say. I mean, I. My I love games that are set in space, so Universal Rule like okay. hits a lot of the, hits a lot of the right beats for me. Good. I also had a lot of work with Chip on that, like in uh-huh. development, even just down to the to the the world building and things like that. So that's one of the ones that is if I had to part with it, you'd have to pull it out of my hands. <laughs> um, but also like Avignon is is a I always love Avignon. I've always loved it, and Circle of Wagons is 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 great as you. Cool. Um, one one thing we hadn't talked about that, that people forget that you do is your storyteller cards. Um, so talk about that. It's a neat idea. Uh, let everybody know what's going on with that. So storyteller cards are a series of playing cards, playing card decks that we made, and the whole idea was they were decks that inspire creativity. So each each deck has it plays like a normal deck of playing cards, but it also has on the other corners of the card. Um, the original series had uh, seasons, it had numbers, it had letters. Um, I'm trying to think of what the original ones had. Um, colors, things like that. So they had all these different variables on all the corners of the cards that could help you with like all kinds of different games and things like that. But the but the illustration on the card had four different things, and it was a character doing an action with an item in a location. And every card had a different character, action, item, and location. Right. So if you were uh, a writer, you could flip any card 
to get a new location for some inspiration or a new character or things like that. Um, or a letter. If you just need to come up with a name, you could flip and there's a letter of the alphabet on, on the card. So there were just all these different little storytelling prompts built into the cards. Uh, and then we made a bunch of games for them and released a little book filled with games right. where, you know, one, I think this was Daniel Solis's, where you start as one character at the beginning of the story and then you end as a different character and you use the cards to kind of tell the, the story that happened in between. Cool. You know, that's just one of them. But then some of them were, were very different than that. And we released a second series that was called Storyteller Cards Fantasy. Yep. That was the same thing, but each one had, you know, a coin, a die, a uh, little attack thing in each of the corners. And then the cards, the character art themselves had weapons and races and classes, uh, just like any kind of classic fantasy uh, game. So so we released the two of those, and we always talked about doing a third, which would have been, like, space-based. But the problem is uh, the artist, you know, took off, and and he's he's super popular right now with his, his, his graphic novel that came out. And not that I couldn't afford him anymore, but he's busy. He's <laughs> definitely busy. <laughs> I think I have his graphic novel right here. On my I was going to say, I'm, I'm a comic book person. Who is this? Uh, his name's Campbell White. Campbell White. And he White. came out with this, this hardcover book called Home Time. That's uh, it's it's amazing. It's about wow. it's, it's it's almost like and it's uh, who made it? Top Shelf Productions. Top Shelf. Okay. It's 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 amazing. Every single uh, chapter is a different art style. It starts out with like just pencils and then gets a little bit of color. Eventually, there's a pixel art chapter. Wow. Um, it's it's an amazing story that feels like a whimsical Goonies. These kids going through this adventure, but they end up in this crazy land. That's a um, big book it, too. It's a big book and it's super cheap on Amazon. Oh, cool. <laughs> you get it for like 20 bucks or something. Wow. But yeah, it's that's, great. That's several hundred pages. Looks like neat. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's great. And he's, he's, he was always great to work with and I'm really happy for him. Well, good. That, that's good. It's, it's nice to see that, that crossover back and forth comics and, and, and gaming because a lot of us share those um hobbies uh i used yeah. to actually i've got some good friends who are are artists and or writers um that are are actually jeff's pretty hot right now so so okay i'll put my plug in for jeff uh it, <laughs> jeff parker he's writing for dc right now he did the guy who developed batman 66 and uh did Future Quest last year? To, got to bring Johnny Quest and the Hanna Barbera heroes out of oh, so out cool. of obscurity, and he's doing. Yeah. A, he's staying along with them right now. He wrote Aquaman for a good long while, and I forget what else he's doing right now. But a good friend of mine went to That's college. Great. Went to college with him and did. We did. Uh, we were on the paper com- uh, comic strip page together. That's cool. He, he's my success, my coattails. <laughs> uh, if I need to get into comics at some point. Yeah. I, I did coloring for a little while, but nothing big. I got paid for a couple small things, but um, That's cool. yeah, that was fun. All right. Let's see. We did. We're going through that. We're going through that. I'm going to, let's take a, uh, just a, a pause. Cause I'm going to have to break this into okay. two to go on. Um, I'm trying to keep, keep podcast under 30 minutes. I don't want to be, I don't want to turn in the geek all stars <laughs> and have a four and a half hour podcast. Uh, I, I used to. Yeah, it's be only eight thirty. We could go on. A- <laughs> we could go forever and ever. 
once we start talking <laughs> about Star Wars, we might. <laughs> I know. Um, so let's pause for just about uh, five or eight seconds. And uh, folks, we'll be back on the ba- other side of the pause. So that is part one of my interview with Jason Tagmar at Button Shy Games. Uh, join me again uh, in a week or so when the second part of the interview will drop. One last thing I did want to mention before we leave this part one with Jason is that I'm having I'm going to have a contest. I've got a copy of Cunning Folk from um, Button Shy and a copy of Wildcats also from Button Shy, and I'm going to give each of those away. Uh, if you want to uh, get your name in the pool, what you'll need to do is go to Buttonshy Games website, go to the blog. Um, at Jason's blog and for the January 1st blog post um, Jason says something about um, new games for the year and I would like for you to comment back on the Go Forth and Game blog and tell me what Jason said about new games for the year. Uh, so that's one way that you can participate in this contest for a copy of Cunning Folk and a second person a copy of of Wildcats. Uh, I thank you for joining me. You can contact me as always. My Twitter handle is at Tom Gerg or at GoForthInGame. You can send me an email at GoForthInGame at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on the website GoForthInGame.com. Thank you once again for joining me and I will see you next time. That's all for this episode. You can find show notes for all episodes at theboardgameworkshop.com. Follow the show on Twitter at the BG Workshop. Like the show on Facebook and join the show's Facebook group to talk about episodes and game design. If you'd like to send in a question, you can email it to questions at theboardgameworkshop.com. Thanks for listening.